word comes from Genesis 1 and 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for so many new faces here this morning. I thank you for this family that you've given us, and I thank you for the word that you've provided for us. Father, I know that there are many of us, um, we struggle with with who we are and, and what our purpose is here. And I think you have given your word to us that we might know where to start and that we are blessed to be in your image. I pray that we would be um, welcoming to your spirit this morning, Father. Amen. Good. It's good to see the students back. Welcome back. So um, who's excited for school to start? Okay, a few of you guys. Good. Good. Hey guys, so thanks for being here. Uh, welcome to Aletheia. If this is your first time, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are a three and a half year old church plant, so we're kind of like a preschooler now at this point, and I, I know all about that because I have a preschooler right now, and so um, we really appreciate you guys being here. This is only our third Sunday in this facility, so God hooked us up. So uh, what's nice is uh, we had somebody count earlier, and we know what, how many of you guys are here this morning. We would not have been able to see all of you in the last place that we met. So can we give God a hand for just providing? Because in, in all seriousness, if we were still at the Hippodrome, some of you guys would have either been turned away this morning or sitting on the floor, and we didn't want that. And so we're super excited that you guys are here this morning. Um, a couple of really quick announcements before we uh, dive in this morning. I kind of explain what our, our goal will be for the fall as far as what we're studying as a church together and, and what, what we're going to do as far as how we spend our time in the Word on Sunday mornings. But when you guys came in, you probably saw one of these when you came to sit down. Uh, we would love for you to fill one of these out. Uh, one of the, the crazy things about this church is that even though there's anywhere from 85 to 125 of you guys here on a given Sunday, only about 20% of you guys participate right, in what we're doing around here. So we need volunteers. We need people that can help us with sound. We need people that can help us with presentation. We need people that can help us set up food in the morning because you guys come in like a pack of ravenous wolves on Sunday mornings and just devour everything back on that bar. We need people to help us watch kids. Um, guys, college guys in particular, I am pleading to you, if you want to learn how to be a dad, practice on my kids on Sunday morning, okay? Some of you guys, here's what's going to happen. 
You're going to spend a couple years here, and right now you're really excited about video games and Florida football and basketball. And you have this like long off dream about being a dad one day. And then you're going to meet this really sweet girl here at, in your time in Gainesville. And you're going to be like, hey, can we, can we go out? And she'll be like, okay, sure. And then she's going to spend some time with you. And you're going to be like, hey, will you marry me? And she's going to be like, no. Not because you're not a great guy, right? Because she's going to realize, hey, this guy has no idea what it's like to be a husband or father. And so we want to help equip you. And one of the ways we can get my wife saying, wow, right now, she thinks I'm totally overselling this right now, okay? Okay, true story, had no idea how to take care of kids before I started serving in the children's ministry at my church while I was in college, okay? And so dudes, highly, highly recommend it. If you are already serving somewhere, would you still please fill one of these out? Because we want current contact information for you guys so that we can make sure we have you in our database. So fill one of these out. When you go to take communion later on, we have our offering baskets on either side there. and They're more like little chests. I don't know what they are. Just drop it in there so that we can get your information and be able to connect with you. Uh, a couple other quick things. Um, men's prayer tomorrow morning, 6.30 a.m. Um, it is at Brent's house, which is literally three blocks that way. Right? Am I right? that my directions right so it's like three blocks that direction 6 30 a.m free breakfast time to pray definitely love you guys to be there uh, community groups will start a week from monday they will be on monday night and wednesday night and they will be here at this facility everybody see those awesome couches back there we'll be holding community groups back in that corner we're going to be doing a study on identity uh talking through how god designed men and women to be how he designed them to relate to one another and what that looks like and so uh we would love for you guys to sign up for a community group group and come hang out with us uh, this fall on Monday and Wednesday nights. Um, and there's free dinner. My wife's reminding me that there's free dinner, which is always good. Um, if you need a ride or you know somebody that needs a ride, you can hop on the website and there'll be information there for you to just request a ride and we will make sure you or someone who needs a ride can get a ride here to church on Sunday mornings or to one of the other things we're doing. Uh, go ahead and put on your calendar. November 5th is the chili cook-off, which is one of the coolest things we do here. Yeah, some people are excited about that one. That's like a crowd favorite here every fall. So um, if you've got a, a sweet chili recipe or, you know, a grandmother that has one, go ahead and pick that up and start working it out now. I think there's a belt that gets passed around for the winter. So definitely want to do that. Sports day, September 11th. Do we have a slide for that, Zach? No. So uh, 2 p.m. September 11th. And I think that's it. Awesome. You guys ready to get started? Yeah. All right, here we go. All right, so we're starting a new series this morning. Uh, the last two weeks we've been looking at the book of Ephesians and we kind of stopped um, doing that uh, just to kind of prepare and get ready for this particular Sunday. Uh, but throughout the course of the fall, what we're going to be doing is we're going to actually be going through this book right here. Some of you guys are like, I can't see that. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Okay, I first came across this when I was in college. Uh, we used it with our children's ministry at the time. And one of the things, and, and here's a, a little hint to you guys for when you're parents one day or if you're already parents or you're soon to be parents. Okay, when you are, when you are looking for a Bible for your kids, what you want to do is you want to find one that's going to point them to Jesus. Okay, children's Bibles have a tendency to tell stories and then put a moralistic spin or lesson on them, which ends up making your child feel like they're never good enough and that they never measure up. 
And so, for example, right, I remember this vividly as a kid, right, I'm sitting in Sunday school at my Methodist church, and I'm sitting there, and Miss Betty's sitting there across from me, sweet old lady, she's in her 70s, and I'm sitting there, and she's teaching us the story of Jonah, right, and we get through this, and we hear this huge story about how, you know, Jonah disobeyed God, and he went on this boat, and he was supposed to go to Nineveh, but he didn't, and then he gets swallowed by a fish, and then we get through the end of it, and the, the fish spits Jonah out, and Miss Betty looks at me and goes, and this is why you need to be a good listener. And I'm like, a fish is going to swallow me? I'm like six. I don't know any better. And, and, what, and what's fascinating, right, and, and you know, it wasn't Miss Betty's fault, it was just the information that she'd been given by the children's ministry director at my church. But the fascinating thing about stories like the story of Jonah is yes, there is a moralistic imperative there that Jonah disobeys God. It's true. But the bigger story in the, in the story of Jonah is that God, when Jonah is thrown over the side of the boat in the Mediterranean Sea, which by the way is a fairly large body of water, keeps Jonah alive for three days and then has the fish, and who, I, don't, I mean I don't know what this fish was, basically submarines him to land, right, and spits him back out, that God sovereignly saves Jonah's life because of his mission, his love for Jonah, and his love for the people of Nineveh, and making sure that Jonah goes for it. And so the great thing about this Bible is, obviously, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, so what's it probably going to do? Point us to Jesus, Right? Because we believe that Jesus is the center, right, of the Bible. Right? Many of us will open up the Old Testament and we'll start reading stories and we'll see them as this disjointed group of stories, right, that have no real connection to one another. Or they're moralistic stories about how we should act, or it's a history lesson. But the reality is, is that the Bible is not a collection of moralistic virtues, but it's actually one long unfolding story about God and who he is. Let me read the opening chapter of this book to you guys, right? So humor me here for a second, okay? If I start crying, forgive me. All right. So the first chapter is called The Story and the Song, right? And, and the author of this Bible is trying to kind of set the page of what this Bible is supposed to do. She says this, Paraphrasing Psalm 19.1, the heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror. To show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words, too, and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some of you think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible actually aren't heroes at all. 
They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are, a lot, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. Okay, and so as, as we're gonna go through this over the course of, of the next couple of months, okay, our goal is for you to walk in here on Sunday morning, hear an old story that some of you guys probably know even better than me because you've been going to church longer than I have. I've only been a believer for about 10 years. And you're gonna hear these stories in a new and fresh way, and hopefully they're gonna point you to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. If um, you're interested, I would highly suggest getting this book, right? And if your roommates are going to make fun of you or whatever else, you can hide it under your pillow or, or, or whatever else, right? Or you can come to my house every night at around 8.15, 8.30 and read my children their Bible story like we do in our house and pray together, right? But I would suggest going through this so that you can kind of know what stories we're going to be going through. Um, but we're going to start this morning at the beginning, Okay, this is why we looked at the verses that Joel read for us earlier, okay? And so, let me start with this before we look at the text. How many of you guys have ever asked yourself this question, why am I here? Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Fair, fair question to ask about the human race, right? Why, why do we exist, okay? And we're being given various opinions, we have... 30,000 different ideas about that, um, throwing ideas at us all the time, worldviews being challenged. And here's the beautiful thing about the Bible, okay? And, and I've studied quite a few of the different world religions and religious texts, and here's, here's the crazy thing about the Bible, is I think the Bible does the best job of both answering that question and answering where things went wrong and answering what's happened since then. And one of the reasons is, is because it starts where it should, and that's with God and not with human beings, okay? Look at Genesis chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and, and pull it open. I would recommend, if not, pulling out your phone and opening the Bible app. We're going to be all over the place in Genesis, and it's not going to all be on the, the board this morning. It was just too much, okay? But Genesis chapter 1, if you look at verse 1, it says this, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here, here we are in the beginning, and what we see, according to Moses who wrote this, has, 
hey, the earth is there, but there's not anything going on. It's, it's void, and there's nothing there. There's, there's no life. There's no order. There's no content, except for one thing. One thing is there. What is it? The Spirit of God. Right? That in the beginning, it's dark, there's nothing there. I don't, I don't know exactly what it looked like. Maybe it was the moon, I don't know. But when you look at what the earth looked like at this moment, the only thing that's noticeable is that the Spirit of God is hovering over the planet that you and I now inhabit. And that the Spirit of God, long before stuff is there, long before we had cell phone towers and internet and all the different things we've done as a society, long before there were trees, vegetation, whatever else, that the creation story begins with God sitting there in the midst of nothing. Okay? And so it says that in the beginning, God is there and the world, the world was without form and void. That there was nothing. So, so this is interesting, right? Because the, the concept is, is that you and I then at some point came from nothing. That there was nothing there. And this is one of those fascinating questions that science thinks it's going to answer. And I'm not entirely sure how it's going to do it. But how do you make something from nothing? Especially if you're going to observe the process of that happening. And so we have this idea that something came from nothing. And then when you get to verse 3, look what God begins to do. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now pause there and think for a second about some of the most powerful things we have on our planet. Okay? powerful people, or you can even imagine some of the fake superheroes that we've imagined up, right, in our, in our brains and in our creativity as human beings. Can any of them do something like this, where they look at a place where there is no life, God says, what, four words, and there's light immediately. Think about the level of power that comes from, how many of you guys have ever watched the show The Office? Okay, good, good majority. Okay, so a few of you are going to get this, this joke that I'm about to share with you, right? Okay, because this idea of something coming from nothing does not exist, right? There's this famous line, at least it's famous in my mind, where Dwight is sitting there with Joan, who's bought Dunder Mifflin from the company, right? And she's, he, he's like the top salesman, and Joan's talking with him, and you guys know Dwight. He's just hilarious, right? And she looks at him and goes, Dwight, are you, are you having that money make more money for you? Right, and what's she referring to? Investing right? And you know what his response is? Are you referring to alchemy? Right? He, he looks at her, right? Because he's, he's like, oh, you mean like that's real? That can, that can actually happen, right? And as scientists for centuries in the past tried to create metal, right? Basically out of nothing. That's what alchemy was. Guess what they found out, by the way? Not, it, they couldn't do it. They, they weren't able to make it happen, Okay? And yet, you know, Dwight makes this joke. And so the idea is that as human beings, we haven't found a way to be able to create something from nothing. And yet God, the moment he speaks, does what? Ta-da! Right? And the lights are on. Okay? So we have day one, right, that, that God speaks and light shows up. And, and we're going to see here in just a minute that one of the fascinating things is he's not even referring to the sun at this point. He's actually going to create that in a minute. That the light originally for the world itself was God himself. 
that God spoke light into being. And this is a common idea in ancient Near Eastern religions where, where we know that Israel started, right? That God either reveals or conceals himself. And clearly in this case, as God is creating the world as we know it, he is revealing himself to his creation to start off by shining a light from himself. And so he shines this light on the earth, and then he looks and he says, this is good. This is good. Okay? Then, then we move to the next day, right? And God says, hey, let there be an expanse. We're looking at verse eight, 6 at this point. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, right? Let me, let me sum that up for you. Because some of you guys, your translation might say canopy. Th- different things are said there. God created our atmosphere. That, that's what he did next. So he, he, he brought light out of himself for the earth. And then the next thing he did was create an atmosphere, okay? Now, just so you guys know, I'm really glad God did this. Okay? Because if we didn't have an atmosphere, you and I would all roast even more than we do in the state of Florida, right? It would get to somewhere between 125 and 175 degrees on the surface of the earth during the day, and then it would drop to about negative 25 to negative 50 at night. That, that, that is what would happen. But because of our atmosphere, we're both protected from the UV rays of sunlight, and we're also able to inhabit this planet because we're not having to deal with those extreme temperatures the way that another planet like, say, Mercury has to deal with, right? So we see that on this day, God creates the atmosphere, right? And he says that it was good. We get to verses 9 and 10, right? And he, sep- he begins to separate lands from water, right? He begins to make habitable places outside of the water for life, right? Look at Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9 for me. They're up there. This is the psalmist kind of reliving this idea of what God was doing in creation. He says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, and at your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So we see there, right, that throughout, right, the book of Psalms, right, that, that Israel knew early on, hey, the fact that you and I are even able to walk on land is because God moved the waters in such a way to allow us to inhabit this planet. God calls mountain ranges, rivers, bays, lakes, etc. to form. And then you get to verse 11, and he begins to speak vegetation into life. And so kind of what we've seen up until this point is that God has been doing things with stuff that already existed on the planet, and then he begins to speak new life into the planet by bringing forth vegetation onto the ground that he's just separated from the waters. And he brings forth this vegetation, it begins to grow, it begins to multiply, and he looks at everything he's done, and he says, this is good. And so we're three days in, according to the account in Genesis chapter 1, God's made light, he's called the atmosphere into existence, right? He's basically creating a habitat for life to exist on earth in a logical progressive order at this point. And he says, it is good. We get to day four, and this is when he puts the sun and the moon in the skies, right? It says that he places the greater light and the lesser light out, out there for us to be used. And this is not just for light. 
the way that God's revealing of himself on day one was. But this is where we get the idea of seasons. This is the way that tides work because of the gravitational pull of the moon. That all of these things are put in place in an ordered fashion so that life could be sustained on this earth. That if you've ever seen the documentary called The Privileged Planet... Scientists have done studies where if the earth was a little bit closer or a little bit further away from the sun, what a drastic effect it would have for life on this earth. And yet our planet is perfectly situated away from the sun to be exactly what our planet needs to sustain life. And that God placed those things there so that farmers would be able to till the land during certain seasons, that the land would get rest during other parts of the season, and that all of it there is there. The sun and the moon have been placed, and then God says... It's good. We get to day five. He places creatures of the sky and the sea, and he begins to tell them to be fruitful and multiply. He says, hey, fish, go make more fish. Right, birds, go make more birds. Do your thing. Be fruitful, multiply the earth. And then we get to day six, and he begins to create animals, right? Livestock, other sorts of animals, wild animals. God made them, and he looks at them, and he says it is good. And then we get to verse 26, which is the climax of Genesis chapter 1. His creation of the human race. Before we look at that real quick, I want to address a couple quick theories, because I've just ran through everything that God does in those brief six days, right? And inevitably, because we are in a college town, we are a smart group of people, right? There's thinking about, well, what's actually going on there? What's happening? There's inevitably going to be arguments and discussions about what's happening. So I want to throw out the four most common theories of what is happening in Genesis chapter 1, okay? So bear with me, all right? The first one, and this, by the way, guys, I'm going to give you about a five-minute briefing on this. This is at least two weeks of seminary, level information here, okay? So be easy with me. Hopefully this will be a springboard for you doing more research on your own, not thinking that I've given you all the information you could ever possibly need, okay? So over the course of this six days in the Genesis account, according to Moses, what, what is going on? What is happening? One of the first theories that you might see that's pretty popular running around right now by scholars and other people alike is what's called theistic evolution, Okay, and what they say is that in Genesis chapter 1, what's happening is actually the process of natural selection and evolution as we understand it biologically, right, through science, but that what is happening is what scientists might call natural selection, we would say God had a hand in natural selection and what's going on. And so what's being described in Genesis chapter 1 is God controlling this process that's taking millions of years and that everything explained in Genesis chapter 1 is figurative, poetic language to describe theistic evolution, which is God's hand in the creation of human life. Okay? The second theory that's pretty popular going around is this idea of what's called the day-age theory. Okay, and that theory states this, that it's a spin on theistic evolution, but they try to be a little bit more loyal to the text of the Bible. And what they say is, is that word day in the Hebrew, which is the original language that the Old Testament was written in, does not actually refer to a 24-hour time period. That it can refer to a 24-hour time period, but it can also just mean a set period of time. And so what's going on there is that each particular leap in evolution happened over the course of this day period that's listed in Genesis chapter 1. And so what's happening is that evolution is taking place and that the Hebrew is not specific enough to say that God is actually doing it in six days. 
Okay? So, so far we've got theistic evolution, we have the day-age theory. The third theory that, that is common, and probably what a lot of you grew up hearing, right, is called historic creationism. Right? Where they literally look at the Bible, they say that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old, that the human race has been around for about that long, that long. There's a literal rendering of the Hebrew, and they believe that God has created everything we see on our planet in six literal days, and that that's how long it, God, it took God to do it. And that what he was doing was preparing for life in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. And it took him six literal days to do that, to create all that we see on earth in the way that it is, okay? The last theory that I would throw out is a theory called the gap theory, okay? And some people might call this young earth, or old earth, new earth creationism. That would be another term for this particular view, okay? And the way that this one works is that they actually believe that the universe has existed for millions and millions of years, and the, the planet that we are on, the rock that Earth is, has existed for millions of years as well. But that between Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, that there is an undeterminable amount of time between those two verses. And that there is an old earth, there was things going on here possibly or whatever else, but that when we get to Genesis chapter 1 verse 3... Right? However old this rock that you and I are living on is, that God began the process about 6,000 years ago of life as we know it on this planet. Okay? And, and then they're able to say that's why we see things like fossils. That's why when we study the age of the earth, it looks as old as it is from the, the rocks. So they say that the Hebrew is not consistent to tell us exactly how much time takes place between those two verses. And so we believe that the earth itself is old, but the creation itself is young from what we see in Genesis chapter 1. And here's, here's the thing. So I can see some of you guys there right now like, well, which one's right, Kevin? Okay. Well, I didn't write the Bible. Okay? And I was not there. Okay? I know I'm older than some of you guys, but I'm only 30. Okay? Was not there, did not see it. Okay? And so here's, here's kind of what I want us to focus on instead. Okay? I do have a theory which I believe is correct. If you really, really want to know, come up and see me afterwards. We'll talk about it. We can grab coffee or something. Okay? But I want to focus on this. In every single one of these theories, the focus is still on the fact that God is sovereign over creation and that human beings are only exist because of him. Whether you are a proponent of theistic evolution or a, historic, a proponent of historic creationism, in both of those theories, the common ground is this. God is the reason all this exists. Without him, it's not here. Whether it took him million of, millions of years and we've misread the Hebrew for the last couple thousand years and now we've got it right, or it took God literally six days to speak everything into existence, which by the way, philosophically, I would just add this, if God is God, he could do it in six days if he wanted to, right? Okay? So whatever method God decided to do, he is the author of creation. Not natural selection, whatever, but that according to Genesis chapter 1, God is the author of all life on earth as we know it. And instead of focusing on our differences, focus on him. Because here's the reality. If God is the author of human life, here are some things that are true. You are not random. You are not the multiplication of some cells from an amoeba. You are not some random luck happenstance 
right, that happened. But that light itself, atmosphere, vegetation, animals, and ultimately people were part of the creativity of the God of our planet and our universe. That he, in his infinite wisdom and power, spoke into existence all that we know, and you are part of his handiwork and his craftsmanship. And that in all of this, as we're going to see in this last part of the text in Genesis chapter 1, human beings are the prized possession of this creation. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay. Does anybody notice anything interesting about the grammar there in verse 26? Look at the word God, okay? Is that singular or plural? Singular, okay, I'm starting to worry about you students, whether you're going to pass your 100-level English class here in a few days, okay? So God is singular, okay? All right, so we have singular noun there, correct? Okay, what comes immediately after that? What is, what is, what is God saying? Let us make man in our image. Has anybody ever noticed that before? Okay, a few of you guys. Anybody not noticed that before until just now when I pointed that out to you? Okay, a few of you guys are honest. The rest of you are lying, Okay. Okay, so it says God singular says let us make man in whose? Our image after whose? Our likeness. Does anybody think that this is a really, really big problem with translation and the grammar is really, really wonky here? Right? Okay, here's, here's what's going on. Okay? Either God is plural, right? There's multiple gods. Someone mistranslated something, or there's something else going on here. Okay, so let me, let me throw out a couple theories that people have about what's happening in Genesis 1.26, and then I'm going to tell you why those theories are wrong and why mine's right. Okay? All right? So some people will say this, and, and our, our, our friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on my door every Saturday morning, this is one of the ones, this is something they believe in. They say that, that God is, is standing there, and when God's saying this, what he's, what he's saying is, is he's in his court amongst his angels talking to them. Okay, and he's saying, hey, hey, angels, all right, we've got animals, we've got, we've got fish, we've got birds, we've got vegetation, we've got all these different things going on. Isn't this, isn't this great? Okay, let's, let's make man in our image. Let's do that, okay? So this is, the, this is the way they explain the Hebrew and what's going on here, right? Okay, big problem with that. Who is the creator of the universe? God. Are angels mentioned anywhere throughout Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2 as being creators? No, not at all, okay? And so they're looking for something, right? But God alone creates not angels, meaning, right, that angels are not part of this process because they don't have the ability or the power to do this in the first place, okay? And so what we, we're still left with this problem. Then what's going on? So some people say, well, you know, God has this court, this heavenly court, okay? Whatever that means, they're still not creators, Only God, throughout the totality of the scriptures, is mentioned over and over again as being the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. 
meaning that it can't be some high court for God. It can't be angels. There are some people that say that this is some example of a majestic plural in language. They're wrong. Majestic plurals were not introduced into the language of human beings until roughly about 4,000 years after this was written. Okay, we're talking about kings in the medieval centuries, not kings, right, from 4,000 B.C., okay? And so here is actually what's going on, and this is where the Reformation was huge a couple hundred years ago. Reformers were reading Genesis chapter 1, and they're reading through this, and they're like, oh my gosh, God in the first chapter of his word and revelation to the human race shows us that he's Trinitarian. The word itself for God in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is the Hebrew word Elohim, right? The word El, right, is a singular masculine noun, and the Im ending, so Aloha, what, right, would be, and not, that we're not, we're not talking about Aloha from Hawaii, right? It's Hebrew, Aloha, it's the word for God, okay? Has this I am ending on the end of it, which makes it plural, okay? Which doesn't make any sense, Right, to put a singular noun with a, with a uh, plural verb ending on the end of it. Unless God, through Moses, is trying to show us something. When you put those words together, the way that the Hebrew is constructed there, what he's saying is there's one unit with many parts making it up. Guys, that's what the Trinity is. One God with three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit making up the Godhead, right? It's kind of like my son, you know, he's four years old, and he asked me a couple weeks ago, you know, he was spitting out some heresy about the Trinity, and we're sitting there, and we're reading, and he's like, yeah, God the Father is God the Son. No. Right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all distinct from one another and different, and yet they're all God. He's like, I don't understand this. I'm like, welcome to the Trinity. Right? Okay? Now, some of you guys are like, well, I can't understand it. First of all, let me, uh, I'm going to do something to try to explain it to you to how it makes sense. But just remember this. Okay? If God is God, and you can't understand everything about Him, it's a, it's a good place to be. Okay? I don't know about you guys, but I would prefer God be smarter than me, more powerful than me. Because if I'm as powerful and as smart as God, what does that make me? God. And just full honesty, I would make a very crappy God. Okay? And so God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. There are some things about him that might be true that I might not be able to understand in my finite wisdom and knowledge. And yet they can simultaneously be true of who he is. But the concept is kind of like if you and I were talking about fruit. Right? You might say, hey, hey, get me the cluster of grapes. Well, how many, if you ask for a cluster of grapes, how many clusters are you going to get? One. A cluster, right? A single. But how many grapes are going to be on that cluster? Multiple grapes. That there are many grapes making up that single cluster of grapes. Same with a banana, right? There can be a singular banana or there can be a cluster of bananas together that you would buy at the store. There can be three separate bananas, all distinct separate bananas. If you have three bananas hanging from your little thing at your house or you sit them on the counter or whatever else, are they all the same? No. And yet there's still one cluster of bananas. That's probably the best explanation we could kind of have to try to understand what the Trinity is. But we look here and we see in verse 26, right, that God is revealing his Trinitarian attributes 
to his people very, very early on. And what he's communicating is, this is who I am, and I'm making mankind in my image and likeness. I've created all these different things at this point. He's done so many different things, and yet he looks and he says, okay, day six, human beings, I'm going to make them unique. I'm going to make them different. That they are going to be created not just out of my creativity, not just out of my power, but they're going to be created in my image and likeness, right? It's this idea of Imago Dei, right? Being made in the image of God. Now stop and think about that for a second, guys. Just like really pause and reflect on that for a second. Because in a world where you don't matter, I know that you guys all got a trophy playing soccer growing up, right? And your teacher and your mom and dad told you how great you were, right? And everyone loved you. But here's the reality, right? We all think we matter to the different political candidates that are coming up here in a few weeks. No, your vote matters. More than likely, you don't matter a whole lot to them, okay? In a world where most people are looking out for who? Number one, right? That's the saying, right? God says, hey, you do matter. Because you bear my image and the very fact that you exist as a human being. Right? And one of the things that's fascinating about this is he says in verse 27, look at this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Saying like, hey, there's no distinction between male and female. They are different. But that they are both made in the image and likeness of God and that they are image bearers of our high God and King, meaning they are equal and valuable to Him. And if you know anything about other ancient Near East religions, which is where Judaism and then Christianity came from, the gods in this region not only didn't care about human beings, but they definitely didn't care about women. That the religions were all centered around you being created to serve God and serve his purposes and exist to make him happy, right? So if you guys have ever studied like Greek and Roman mythology, what do they have to do? They have to do different things to appease the gods so that the gods are happy and continue to do their their things, right? And then we see here in Genesis chapter 1 something completely different. God says, you are my special creation. Not just mankind, but you sitting in that seat this morning. God is saying to you, you are my special creation. How does God distinguish this? How, do, how, how can we know? Well, look what he says. He says he gives dominion, right? To, to human beings, he gives dominion. Meaning that the human beings are given the right to rule over the world. To put the land to use so that we might grow crops from it. So farming, right? To eat animals and to raise livestock in such a way that it might be provision for food. To fish and do all these different things that God does that, right? And what's really interesting is underneath that mandate of dominion, he also gives mankind, right, a moral imperative to choose the right and wrong way to do those things. That those things are are God-given to choose what God might have from us. So this is what God's saying, he's like, hey, human beings, you're not driven solely by instinct, right? Some of you guys that have been around a while, you know that I like to use this example, right? How many of you guys are dog or cat people in here? 
okay? So, and here's one of the fascinating things. I, I don't really like cats, but the cat people at least understand animals, okay? They're like, like hey, does your cat love you? No. Right, my cat does its own thing. You know, it's kind of like whatever, okay? And the cat people kind of realize the way... You dog lovers think that your, like, Fido is, you know, your, your second brother twice removed or something. I don't know. And you think, you know, like, little Sparky has a, a, a personality and he can speak to you and whatever else. Like, a, you're a dog whisperer or something like that, right? And hear me out because I think dogs are great, Okay. But your dog is driven by instinct, whether it's its packed instinct, whether it's the fact that you've been the one feeding it for the last eight years and that's why it loves you so much, right? It's loyal to you because you fed it for a really long time, okay? Here's proof. When I was growing up, I had a dog in middle school, all right? I fed him every day. He loved me. Duke was like, Kevin is the man. Okay, I went away to college for three weeks. I came back, guess who he was listening to and hanging out with at my house? My dad. Because my dad was the one feeding him. So my dog that loved me so much, he just got me. Right? He understood who I was. Right? Did not care once I stopped feeding him. Okay? This, is, this is true of the animal world because they are running on instinct. And yet God is saying, hey, human beings, I've created you differently and, and uniquely. Now, some of you guys are like, Kevin's a dog hater. No. Right? I'm just trying to show you that you are created, right, to be higher, to have a different responsibility, that you were created uniquely by God to be different from them for a reason, because you bear the image and likeness of God, of God in who you are. And so in your basic moral choices, deciding what good is, what wrong is, right, listening to God on those imperatives, that God has created you to know these things, right? He gives you leadership abilities, right, in that dominion to be able to steer. And one of the things, the, the, the course of human events, and one of the things that I find fascinating is that you don't look at dogs or cats or other animals. Are they out building entire cities and communities? No, like the best thing dogs have done if they're wild is roam in packs and kill things together, okay? Human beings have created infrastructure all over the world because in the image of God, we bear part of his creativity. And so you and I are able to build and be creative and make things and make advancements because the image of God is born inside of you and I from the outset, whether you are a follower of God or not. That the ability to create and mold and do things and steer and guide things is given in that dominion when God created the human race to begin with. And then lastly, in the fact that he created males and females, and if you read Genesis chapter 2, which we do not have time to do this morning, you see that God created males and females for each other to be in relationship because God himself, as we saw in verse 26, is in relationship because he's within the Trinity. And that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in a perfect union and harmony with one another. And that we, created in God's image and likeness, are also built to be relational. And that the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal to one another, working without distinction or partiality, that we as human beings are supposed to be the same way. That we're supposed to reflect that relational beauty, that love for one another, that service for one another, the making much of one another, and to relationally be in community together because God is, and that is why we operate that way in the first place. And so God creates, 
He specially focuses in on humans. He gives dominion. He blesses them. In verse 28, it says he praises them. He blesses them, and he gives them a mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And what we are seeing now, right, this is answering that question, why am I here, right? And it has nothing to do with the specifics of being fruitful and multiplying and fulfilling the earth, although that's what the human race has been doing for the last 6,000 years, right? Okay? That God looks at mankind and says, you were placed on earth for a purpose. To worship me in the way that you live your life because you are my image bearers and you reflect that image like a mirror in your very existence. This, this means that like there's this, this, this popular idea, right, that there is this breakdown of what is holy and sacred and what is secular and Genesis chapter one in reality completely shuts that down. There's no such thing as Christian music and secular music, okay? And by the way, switch what falls in the Christian section, whether you youth group kids like it or not, okay? Right, there is, there is no breakdown of that because here's the reality. God created you to do things like work, create, lead, love, be in relationships with people, and that those very actions, those things that make us human, reflect Him and bring glory to Him because we're fulfilling our created purpose. That the human race, and here's the reality, because some people say this, like, well, if someone's not a Christian, they, they can't be reflecting God's love and they can't be doing anything good. And there is some truth to that, that apart from God, we are nothing. But the reality is, is that on the most fundamental level, the fact that human beings exist reflect the nature and character of God because God uniquely and wonderfully made the human race. Our actions worship God. Our rule and dominion and the way we, we, we lead things and we create things worships God. And yes, there is a right and wrong way to do those things, and that is more proof of God's image being inside of us, right? The point is... That God created you to reflect his power, dominion, and goodness. And that is where we're supposed to be. And in verse 31 it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Good meaning that it was peaceful and harmonious, meaning that in the original design and intention for the universe and the planet that we lived on, that God created all of us to live in this harmonious state, which in the Hebrew is the word shalom, which means peace. Whereas if, if you look at Genesis chapter two, men and women are living, Adam and Eve are living in perfect harmony with one another and with God. They're talking with God, they're walking with God, they have a relationship with him. He's explaining what to do and what not to do. That Adam, you don't see Adam and Eve bickering over who's gonna make dinner, right? Or who's gonna take out the trash, right? You don't see any of those things in Genesis chapter two, right? Because God created that environment to be harmonious and reflective of his Trinitarian relationship. And the reality is, is that God created you 
Every single person sitting here, every single person in the city of Gainesville, every single person that attends the University of Florida, every single person in our state, in our country, in our world, is made in the image and likeness of our God and King. There is no other God that your, your worst enemy on this planet is still made in the image and likeness of God. Yes, God loves Seminoles too. Okay? Seeing some booze, it's okay, right? That they were still made in the image and likeness of God. And he uniquely and lovingly made everything to reflect him and bring glory upon himself. That is where we are today, guys. It has not changed over the course of the last 6,000 years. Human beings are still here because they reflect that image of God and who he is like a mirror. Right? If you look at the end of this particular chapter in the Jesus Storybook Bible, this is how the author finishes it. She says this, But all the stars and the mountains and oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them. Whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. Because he created them. That no matter what happens, God still loves and cares for you. God designed you to know him because he made you. Have you ever had that longing when you've been asking that question, like I said earlier, why am I here? The reason you're asking that question in the first place is because God has placed a void or vacuum inside of you to need that space filled. To know why you exist and you exist for the glory of God because you are his image bearer. And so the question is like, well, what happened? Why is everything so chaotic then? Right? Why are my parents divorced? Why did my mom die from cancer? Right? Why am I struggling with health issues? Right? Why can't I get into the university I want to get in? Why can't I relationally stay with my boyfriend and girlfriend? Why is it such a disaster? Because right? we're talking about beauty and harmony and love here. And you look around at the world around you and say, it doesn't feel a whole lot like that. We're going to look at it next week, but the reality is, is that sin entered the world. Disobedience to God and his harmony, right? Some people are like, oh, God makes a bunch of rules, and it's just like chaos, and I don't want to follow those rules. Guys, it's not like God, when he created the universe, sat down and looked out at everything. And was like, okay, now how can I deny these people from different things? How can I make them really, really unhappy? I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll make a bunch of rules that, that, that they can't follow and make things terrible. If God created the universe, do you think he probably knows a thing or two about the way it's supposed to operate? Right? Like, for example, right, if you're using a computer and you don't know how to use it, you need to call tech support. Let's say it's Windows. Are you going to call tech support for Apple? Right? Some of you guys are like, no, but I would call Apple to get an Apple computer so I don't have to deal with Windows. Right? But you're going to call tech support for the creators of that program because they know how it operates. Well, if God created the universe, he probably knows a thing or two about the universe and the way it's supposed to operate. And so when God gives mandates that you and I may or may not listen to, he's not giving them to be some ruler taskmaster. He's saying, look, you think it's not a big deal that you're going to do that. I'm telling you right now that you're going to rob yourself of joy if you don't listen to me. 
You're going to rob yourself of joy and you're not going to live harmoniously and know what life is supposed to look like in shalom because you're going to rob yourself of it by not following my mandates. And yeah, it might seem good in the moment and it might seem fleeting in the moment, but it's going to prove in the end not to be good, right? Number one example, right, that I'm going to give out right now, adultery, right? You, you can never talk to a guy or a woman who's committed adultery and say, in that moment, it seemed like a good idea, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Seemed like a good idea. Okay, now that your family is divorced and your kids are broken because of what's happened and that relationship is fractured and that person you committed to for your whole life, right, when you stood before God and others is, doesn't even want to talk or speak to you anymore, does it seem like such a good idea now? No, because for a moment of fleeting goodness, they robbed themselves of true joy and happiness in that moment. God didn't give that mandate just because he wanted to give us some rules to follow. He gave the mandate because he knew what would bring us the most joy. And there is a difference between momentary happiness and true joy. But the last line of that, that thing I read you from the Jesus Story Bible said this. God would move heaven and earth to be near them always. Whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And that is what the Bible is all about. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are God created. Here's why you're here. Genesis chapter 3 is here's where it all went wrong. And everything after that is here is how God is fixing the mess you created, humans. Here is what God is doing. And what he did is he sent his only son Jesus Christ to live and die on the cross as atonement for your sin and for mine. Like Jesus didn't just come to hang out and be some good moral teacher, right? Or start a political uprising or hang out with some fishermen in Galilee. As a matter of fact, if I understand Philippians chapter 2, he was hanging out in the throne room of heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It's not like he's like, oh man, the Sea of Galilee looks like a pretty cool place to hang out for a few years. He put on human flesh so that he might suffer and die for you and I so that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 could begin to be restored back to God's original intention and design. If you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not just humans, but all of creation is and will be reconciled to him. But only through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to finish up by praying. The band's going to come up and play, play a song, right? And we're going to take communion. We do that every Sunday at Aletheia, okay? You may come up and take communion as you feel led. There's tables here on either side. If some of you guys have a particular food allergy, there is a gluten-free option for you guys. Please, if you, you go to take the bread and dip it in the wine, if you are using the bread, please do not dip it in the cup with the gluten-free option, okay? I just ask that you would respect that for those that can't have cross-contamination, okay? But what we're doing as we take communion, right, is that we are identifying as Christians with Jesus's death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. You're saying, 
I'm taking communion because I believe that Jesus Christ came and died for my sins. I believe and have trusted in him as the only way to forgiveness of my sins and salvation. And I would ask that you would joyfully come up, partake of communion, worship God, thank Jesus for what he has done, and then we're going to sing songs that make much of him together. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are the only reason we have to be up this early on a Sunday morning, to be here singing songs that praise you together, to be building relationships and community with one another as we're here. God, thank you for your reminder in your word that you have uniquely and wonderfully created human beings to reflect your glory and honor you. God, I pray that if anyone here this morning walked in not knowing how valuable they are and how loved they are by you, Holy Spirit, that you would move in them now and that they would know it. Then in a world that places no value on us, God placed supreme value on us by sending his only son to die for our sins. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. May we continue to grow, love, and honor you as your followers. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.